We're going to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As I mentioned, you'll want to hold your place in Philippians, and uh, we'll also be looking at Romans 6 a little bit later on. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. The Bible teaches us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It's so desperately wicked that God says, who can know it? Proverbs tells us he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Now, that's very different than what you will hear in our culture if you just listen to the radio, or I guess nobody listens to the radio anymore, listen to podcasts and watch uh, movies and talk to people. Uh, we're supposed to follow our heart, we're told. We're supposed to, you know, trust our heart. And the Bible says, no, no, we're, we're not to trust our own heart. In fact, our heart is d desperately wicked. Now, if, if that's all I knew about the Bible, I would go around very suspicious of everybody, including you. And you'd be well to, to be very suspicious of me, too. But, you know, the neat thing is God doesn't want us to stay in that broken state that we start in. He doesn't want us to stay in that state of sinfulness and selfishness that all of us are born in. We're all born sinners. He doesn't want us to stay there. So today we're going to talk about God's power to change us. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Lazarus. He was dead. He's in the tomb. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus is raised to life. Last week, we looked at justification, the truth that God's power saves us. And in, that's in an instant that we're saved. Today, we're going to look at sanctification. Sanctification is how God changes us. And unlike justification, which is an event, happens in an instant, one moment you're not justified, the next moment you are justified, sanctification is a process that occurs over time. And if you don't understand that, it can be very frustrating. It can be very uh, discouraging, even disappointing. So I want you to understand, unlike justification, which happens in a moment, sanctification is a process. Sanctification is also something that happens by God's power. The, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, of course, is Romans 8, 28. But we know, uh, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And we like to quote that and remind ourselves that God is working everything together for our good. But it doesn't say he's working everything together for our good. It says he's working everything together for good. And that good is, is defined for us in that next verse. It says this, and I'm going to read you Romans 8, 29. For whom God, he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. That good that God is working in my life and is working in your life is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. So it's God's power. It's God's power to do the impossible. That is, take a heart that is broken by sin and selfishness and make it whole again. That's the new life in Christ that we want to experience. Last week, we talked about that new life as in spiritual life. We were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, and now we're alive in Christ. Now we want to experience that life. Remember, Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So what is that more abundant life? How is it that we experience that life? And that's what sanctification deals with. So let's look now at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. 
First Corinthians chapter six, verse 11 says, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God, but ye are justified, excuse me, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified. We're going to look at that central one, but ye are sanctified uh, today. Now, frankly, this, this week's message is deeper than last week's message in this way. Last week, anyone who heard my message could have responded to it. And if you were not justified when you came last Sunday morning, you could have left justified. But today, you're not going to understand sanctification unless you have been justified. It's not going to make sense to you. Some of the things I say, you may be scratching your head thinking, that no, that's not the way life works. Without justification, none of us, it's not possible for God to start the process of sanctification. So if you're a little bit confused by this morning's message and, and you're looking at the scripture and it doesn't match up with how you think about life in the world, let me encourage you after the service to grab me, grab one of the other members here and say, hey, there's some things I don't understand. And my guess is the first thing you'll need to understand is justification in order to understand this message about sanctification. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to preach your gospel, to, to, to give us hope, to give us direction, not because I know more or I figured it out, but because your word tells us. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would work powerfully through your word this morning to draw our attention to truths, to to help us understand, to show us, to reveal to us where we are at, whether we are justified or not. And then for those of us that are justified, who are your children, to show us where we're at in that process of sanctification. And I ask that it would be an encouragement and, and bring hope to people today. I pray that it would be an encouragement to those who are eagerly experiencing that sanctification day by day. And for those Christians that have fallen by the path and and are not experiencing that abundant life that you have for them, I pray that today's message would open their eyes to the truth that you want them to have life more abundantly. And uh, for me, Lord, give me the words to communicate this truth. And give me a heart that cares deeply, that loves people, and wants to see them grow in their Christian lives, wants to see them successful, victorious Christians. And I ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, there's five words that I'm going to come back to today a little bit, and then uh, again uh, tonight, and then from time to time. So you might want, if you're taking notes, you might want to write these five words down. I think at some point I need to just focus on these five words, but they are virtue, discipline, patience, effort, and commitment. Virtue, discipline, patience, effort, and commitment. And let me just start by saying this about virtue. Virtue is who you are on the inside. And it is going to eventually come out in your behaviors and who you are on the outside. But virtue starts on the inside. Now, most of the time today, we want technique. We want to know what I have to do on the outside to get what I want. Think of it in, in terms of salesmanship. Now, if you're a salesman, and some of you are salesmen here, and I don't think all salesmen are bad. There are some good salesmen, okay? But if you're in sales, often the focus is on technique. How can you make more sales? The problem with that is I've met salesmen who are only interested in selling me a product. And I don't trust those guys. 
And I've also met salesmen who are just because of who they are, they genuinely care about people and they genuinely think their product may be a help to me. And it very quick, in the sales process, it very quickly becomes apparent to me, maybe to you too, which guys are there just to sell me something, whether I need it or not. And which salesmen are there because they genuinely believe in their product. And maybe it'll work for me. And if it won't, guess what? They'll say, hey, you know what? This product's not for you. And I've had several salesmen just in the last year say that, you know, I'm talking to you about your issue or the church's issue, whatever. This, this isn't what you need. I'm so grateful for that because I don't want to buy something I don't need. But that takes virtue on the part of the salesman who could take advantage of my ignorance. And by the way, I'm ignorant about a lot of things. Could take advantage of my ignorance just to sell me the product. That's the difference between virtue and technique. And when it comes to the Christian life, God wants to change us from the inside out. And the reason that's important is sometimes because of our culture, we want to come to Christianity as a series of techniques that makes our lives better. But Christianity isn't a series of techniques that makes your life better. Christianity, after justification, Christianity is God working you over to make you into the image of Jesus Christ, to conform you to the image of his son on the inside, and then it will come out on the outside. And often that process is very painful. It's painful and we don't like it. I can see this, recent example, I can see this in Ben and Natasha Murray's life. They're our missionaries. They went to Taiwan. Now she has a chronic, as far as I can understand it, lifelong illness, disease that isn't going to just go away. And they're wondering, where is God leading us in all this? They entitled their, their, or not entitled, but they kept coming back to this theme in their prayer letter, limping by grace. Now that's not the message most of us want to hear. But the truth is, if that's what God has put them, then they can be assured that that is the best plan for their life. The plan that'll bring the most glory to God. Not the plan that's easiest for them. I don't wish fibromyalgia on anybody, but it is the plan that God has for them because he's sanctifying us. He's changing us into his image. We call this process sanctification. We call this process, uh, it's God by his grace purifying us. God by his grace purifying us. Let's start with some verses you may know, you may not. I'm not going to have you turn to each one. Instead, what I'm going to do is just quote them to you or read them to you from my notes. But please write down the, the references and look at them yourself later. God is very interested in your, if you're a Christian, God is very interested in your sanctification. God's very interested in your sanctification. Let's start with one we all know. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we like to stop right there. But you know what the next verse? Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now, notice the good works come after justification, after salvation. Don't, don't get confused. I'm not saying God wants us to work for our salvation. That's heresy. But after we're saved, God has good works for us. He's trying to change us into something that we weren't before. That's why it says we are his workmanship. Some of you are craftsmen. You work with wood or with metal or with some other physical object. And you take something that's rough. And I look at it and I think, boy, that, that's not worth much and you turn it into something that's beautiful. That's your workmanship. Guess what? God's taking us, broken us, selfish me, sinful me, 
sinful you, and he's changing us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification is. Here's another verse, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God, even your sanctification. If you were to come to me and say, you know, pastor, I'm really looking for the will of God. Well, I don't know where you should live necessarily or what job you should take or if you're single, who you should marry. I don't know the answers to all that. But I can tell you the will of God is your sanctification. Here's another one. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And then faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. So God is intensely interested in your sanctification. After justification, this is the second most important topic that we can talk about. Because God wants to purify you and make you a vessel, a person that's um, prepared for his use. So let me give you a couple of definitions of sanctification. Some of you have heard these definitions before, but the first one is the process by which God's grace purifies the committed Christian. The process by which God's grace purifies the committed Christian. Now, don't worry too much about the adjective they're committed, the gerund they're committed. We're going to talk more about what that means here toward the end of the message. But God's grace wants to purify each one of us. God wants to, excuse me, use his grace to purify each one of us. And that process is called sanctification. That's the first definition. The second definition has two parts. Has two parts because in the Old Testament, you'll see this word sanctify Um, The old English word is to hallow, H-A-L-L-O-W. To sanctify means to set apart for sacred use. To set apart for sacred use. So in the Old Testament, as Moses and the children of Israel were building the tabernacle, they would take objects that once had just everyday common use, and they would either create new objects or they would sanctify those old objects now for sacred use. But they didn't just do that with objects, they did that with people too. If you're following the Bible reading schedule that's in the church's calendar, you've just read through Exodus and now you're into the book of Leviticus. And the book of the last half of Exodus and the first half of Leviticus, you see about Leviticus 10 or 11, I believe it is, you'll see that God sanctifies Aaron and his sons. God takes average, ordinary men, and he says, I want you to set them apart for sacred use. They're going to serve in the tabernacle. They're going to be distinct and different from all these other people. And there was a whole series of rituals to get them to that point. So again, here's the thought. Sanctification is to set apart for sacred use. But if we're going to set something apart for sacred use, we have to make it pure or we have to make it holy. And so the second definition of Sanctification is to purify a person, and specifically we're looking at people, that's you, that's me, to purify a person so that they may be used by God. God wants to use every Christian in this room. Unfortunately, we can limit God's use of us by our lack of cooperation, by our lack of purity. 
So the second definition, to purify a person so that they may be used by God. So let me give you the third definition, and this is just a, a, my layman's definition. This is one that I think will be the most helpful to the average person here today, and that is sanctification is changing, oops, is a change in you that leads to a change in your behavior. It's a change in you first. It's not a change in your behavior first. It's a change in you first that leads to a change in your behavior. Again, it's not a matter of technique. Okay, in the Christian life, do these things. In the Christian life, don't do these things. And somehow that makes you a different person. It's a change from the inside out. It's a change in you that leads you to do or not to do certain things. Sanctification requires effort. God's grace empowers you, but you have to cooperate with God's grace. I wish I didn't. I wish it wasn't that way. I wish God could just change me from the inside out without my cooperation. Because sanctification is difficult and it's painful and it's uncomfortable. But it requires effort. It takes discipline, patience, commitment. These other words that we were talking about before. So let's look here at today's text. Go back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's pick it up at verse 9. So when we get to verse 11, we can see what he's saying there. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 says this, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So already you see a descriptor there, the unrighteous. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Now he's going to give us a list of unrighteousness that's not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And we all would say, oh yeah, that that makes sense. Bad people should not get into heaven. But notice what verse 11 says, and such were some of you. Now, I don't want to take time to go through each of these, but I can guarantee you I can probably fit everyone in this room into one of those 10 categories. And if I can't get you into one of the 10 categories he listed, I can get you into the first category, which is the unrighteous. All of us were there, weren't we? What happened? God's grace is what happened. Sanctification is what happened. Now, if you say, well, well, pastor, what do you mean? I'm still in that list. Well, then I have good news for you today. God doesn't want you to stay there. He wants to move you from that place of unrighteousness and wickedness into righteousness and truth. How does this happen? Well, verse 11 tells us, such were some of you, but you're washed but you're sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Notice who the agents of change are in this. The agents of change are not you. The agents of change is the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. You do not grow more holy. You do not experience this sanctification because you are a good person. You experience this sanctification because God is at work in you. Now, let me show that to you from Philippians. Hold your place there in in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and go over to Philippians 2. I mentioned we'd be back there. Philippians chapter 2. 
and verse 13. Philippians 2.13, we read this in unison a few minutes ago. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God is working on each one of us that are Christians, that are, sanct- that are justified. He's working on each one of us to sanctify us, to make us, like I said earlier from Romans 8, to change us into the image of his son, to conform us, to transform us, into the image of his son. But we have to cooperate with what God is doing. Let me show that to you in this passage in Philippians chapter two. He says this, wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, key word there, you've always obeyed. He says, obedience is part of this, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, some people see that work out your own salvation and they attribute it to justification. We know that's not true because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, God tells us. No, it's not work your own salvation. It's work out. Take the effects of justification and make those results obvious in sanctification. So we have to cooperate with God in this work of sanctification. God regenerates us And that's why we are more sensitive to sin after our salvation than before. Now, maybe you were saved a long time ago. But if you've been saved recently, think about this. Have you noticed how after you became a Christian, it seemed like you felt guiltier about your sin than before you were a Christian? Before you were a Christian, you could do things and you didn't care. Then God justified you. You were saved. You became a child of God. And now you, it's like every little thing you do seems so evil. By the way, that's good news. Now, I know it's discouraging at first. I've experienced it. It's discouraging. It's like, I'm never going to get this right. The problem is you were really, really bad before you were a Christian. And guess what? As soon as you become a Christian, that doesn't all go away. But God starts opening your eyes to see how bad it is. Now I have good news. God doesn't want you to live with guilt. And, and the weight of all your sin. That's why he tells us if we confess our sin, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you will feel more guilty after you become a child of God than you were before. And I've talked, it didn't just happen to me. I've talked with lots of folks that, boy, they became a Christian. And they say, oh man, suddenly I feel terrible. Things I could do before and it didn't bother me. Now I do it and I, I just, it hurts Yeah, that's the Holy Spirit at work in you. Again, the Holy Spirit is the agent of change. And God also offers us, as part of this change process, He offers us His unlimited grace, His infinite grace. There's no sin you're going to face that is so big that God's grace cannot overcome it. So if that's true, let me ask you this. Why is it that we have trouble overcoming some sins? Well, the answer is we're not cooperating with God. His grace is there. It's just waiting, but we're not cooperating with him. I tried to turn on my coffee maker today, and my coffee maker didn't turn on. And I thought, boy, one more broken thing in my house. And then I realized it had been unplugged. And as long as it's unplugged, it's not going to work. And the same thing is true. God's grace is infinite. The power in that electrical plug is for all intents and purposes at my home, infinite. I know it's not infinite, but it's infinite, at least to brew coffee. But you got to plug it in. 
And so often in our own lives, we live defeated, not because God doesn't want us to experience his grace, but rather because we're not cooperating with his grace. It's a, like, it's a lot like a car. Those of you that drive cars, you understand there's this powerful engine in a car. I, I'm not an electrical vehicle. This is an internal combustion engine. There's this powerful ve- uh, engine in this car that produces all kinds of power, but it will never turn the wheels until it goes through a transmission. And God's power is limit, limitless. It can do anything that God wants it to do, but we've got to put the car in gear. Have you ever bumped your automatic transmission into neutral and not realize it and you step on the gas to go at a red light? I mean, at a green light, don't step on the gas at a red light. <laughs> step on a gas at the green light and your car doesn't go anywhere. It's not because the engine died. It's because you took it out of gear. And in our Christian lives, we can take ourselves out of gear and God's grace is infinite, but we don't experience that abundant life because we're not cooperating with him. Let me show you that in Romans chapter six. Let's look at Romans chapter six. And the reason we didn't start in Romans chapter six is because the word sanctify doesn't actually appear in Romans chapter six. But I want you to see how this works. Romans chapter six describes how we have to cooperate in the effects of God's work as we looked at in the, in the uh, Philippians. Philippians 2.13, it is God that works in us both to do and to will of his good pleasure. And we have to cooperate with that work that God is doing. There are three parts to this. The first part is in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. But like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Newness of life. There's going to be something different about us after justification because we are going to walk in newness of life. We were crucified with Christ, but we weren't left there. We were raised to new life. There's something we have to know, and that is we need to know our new position in Christ. That word also shows up in verse 6, Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. That word knowing shows up in verse 9, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. There's some things you need to know about your position in Christ. I'm teaching you those things today. In many cases, you've known them for a long time. But if any man be in Christ, the Bible says he is a new creature. At justification, something happened and you can't be the same way you were before. That's why 1 Corinthians 6 says, and such were some of you. He doesn't say, and such are some of you. No, such were some of you, but God doesn't leave us there. He justifies us in an instant, and then this process of sanctification begins. But we have to know our new position in Christ. There's a second thing we need to do, also in Romans chapter 6. Look with me at verse 11. Romans 6 verse 11 says this, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We not only know our new position in Christ, but we reckon it to be true. We consider it to be true. We act as if it is true. And I don't mean act as in fake it. I mean act as in do something. We reckon it to be true. There's an element of faith here. Because there's things that we know 
but we never act on. Sometimes we know something, but we don't act on it because we don't really believe it to be true. If I can use just a very recent experience that many of us are aware of, you may not realize this, but the Chinese are sending weather balloons over the United States. Yeah, they are. Uh, David, you don't believe the Chinese? Uh, I don't believe the Chinese. I don't think they're weather balloons. Now, I may know what the Chinese say about those balloons that are flying over the United States, but I don't believe them. And you know what? Sometimes we come to God's word and we read what God's word says, and then internally we say, yeah, but I don't believe that. Now, if you've never done that, congratulations. But I've done that. Something very clear in God's word, do this, don't do that. And I say, yeah, 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 well, I don't believe that. Guess what? You know something, you just don't reckon it to be true. There's a difference. Sometimes we know something, but we have serious doubts. We don't, we're not sure it's a lie, but we're not sure it's true either. One, one time a, a teenager brought home a car to their parents, and the side mirror had been clipped off. Now, how many of you ever, have ever lost a side mirror in traffic? Okay, so you're probably familiar with the idea that sometimes people drive so close to you, they literally smack your mirror and knock it off. So the father says to his teenager who's brought the car home, what, what happened, right? And the teenager brings the car home, says it was a bicyclist who rode by and smacked that mirror and ripped it right off. Now the father's thinking, yeah, that could happen, but I don't think so. That'd be pretty painful for the bicyclist, for one thing. Now, again, father wasn't there, didn't see it, not saying it's a lie, maybe that happened, but they have serious doubts. Some of you have serious doubts about God's word. And until you reckon God to be faithful to his word, until you count it, you count on it, and you plan to act on it, you won't experience God's grace in your life because you're not cooperating with him. So when we reckon something to be true, we anticipate the victory. We anticipate that what God says will come to pass. Sometimes you can know something, but you don't believe it applies to you. Sometimes you can know something, you just don't think it applies to you. I don't know how many times when I was teaching high school, I'd say to a student, hey, 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 you know what the rules are. He'd say, yeah, but that's not for me, is it? Yeah, yeah, it's for you. That's what the rules are for. We come to God's word. We read it. Oh, that's really good. My, my, my wife, boy, she really needs to get that one, right? <laughs> that's really good, Lord. My kids need to learn that one. Uh, Lord, that's really good. Guillermo, boy, show that one to him, right? The word of God isn't a hammer that I bludgeon other people with. The word of God is a fire that burns in my own heart and says, hey, you've got to change. So number one, you need to know something, but then second, you, secondly, you need to reckon it to be true. And because you reckon a promise of God to be true, you will attempt to live it out. That's that step of faith that's required if we're going to get to this third part, and that's to yield to the Holy Spirit. We'll, reckon, we'll, we'll know something, we've learned it, we see our new position in Christ, we reckon it to be true, yep, that, that's right, I, I'm going to count on that. And because I'm going to count on that, I'm going to step out by faith and I'm going to do something. That's when we yield to God and we yield to the Holy Spirit and we utilize the infinite grace that God offers to us, expecting victory. Not expecting defeat, 
not expecting to be tripped up or to fail miserably. We expect victory. Why? Because God said it. That's the yielding part. Look with me at verse 13, Romans chapter 6, verse 13. Romans 6, 13 says, Neither yield ye your members, that's the members of your body, the parts of your body, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. What did he tell us earlier? Know ye not? You've been buried with Christ. You've been raised with him. He says, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. So this is what you're going to do. You're going to yield your members to God as those that are alive from the dead. It's in that yielding, it's in that obedience, obeying God's command that God's grace meets us. Please don't forget, never forget, it's not your power that sanctifies you. It's God's power that sanctifies you. All you have to do is cooperate with God's power. Now, let me give you three examples that I can imagine in people's lives. I don't have anybody in particular, but three examples of how we live out this know, reckon, yield. Let's talk about the first case. The case of a Christian who is plagued by worry. You find it difficult to sleep at night because you're thinking about all the things that might go wrong or you're anticipating failure. You imagine that you don't even, you shouldn't even get out of bed in the morning because it's going to be such a terrible day and you're worried about it. You feel your stomach and it's tied up in knots during the day because you're worried that something's about to go wrong. Now, let me ask those of you that are mature Christians, does God want us to worry? No. No, you say, well, I don't think so. I mean, you know, pastor, maybe you don't think. No, no, no. I'm not telling you what my opinion is. This is what God says. Be careful for nothing. Be filled with care for nothing. You say, yeah, but my kids. Listen, I have four kids. And four kids can bring a lot of worry on a person until you realize God says, don't be filled with care. Don't be anxious. Don't be worried about your children. Instead, you're going to bring those to me in prayer. This is Philippians 4. I don't have time to teach it, but I can guarantee you God doesn't want you to be worried. Here's Isaiah 26, excuse me. Isaiah 26, 3. Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. That's what God wants for us, peace. So when I find myself worried, when you find yourself worried, I can tell you what. Number one, you're going to remember, you're going to know that you are a new creature in Christ. You're going to reckon it to be true. And you're going to yield to God and to God's Holy Spirit and receive the peace that he's offering to you. Now, again, it's not technique, it's virtue. And it's not your virtue, it's God's virtue flowing into you. But you can live at peace even in the most troubling circumstances if you'll know your position in Christ, reckon God's promise that thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee and yield to what God the Holy Spirit is trying to do in your life and in your heart. I've experienced it. And God wants you to experience it. Regardless of how big of a problem you have, God's grace is infinitely bigger. 
regardless of how serious the obstacle seems to you, God's power is infinitely greater. Now, what will not necessarily happen, and this is what I always wish would happen, is the circumstances change when I wake up in the morning. No, no, often the circumstances don't change. Sometimes for years, the circumstances change, don't change. They stay the same. That's where patience comes in. But guess what? God, the Holy Spirit, can give you fresh grace for every day. And you can wake up, new grace. Go to bed that night, new grace. Wake up, new grace. Go to bed, new grace. Over and over again, you'll find that God's grace is infinitely there. Don't worry. Let me talk about another one. It's a little bit harder for me to talk about, but let me get there. Do you find yourself constantly looking at things that are evil? We call it pornography. Do you realize God doesn't want any Christian to be in bondage to pornography? I quoted you earlier for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. I didn't quote the end of the verse because I was saving it for now. First Thessalonians 4 verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence. In other words, God wants me to be free from those temptations and those desires to look at evil. But guess what? Sometimes you say, I just can't help myself. Well, listen, if you're in Jesus Christ, guess what? You're a new creature. You've got to know that. You've got to reckon that to be true. And when temptation comes, you've got to say, God, I'm going to yield my members to you, not to the flesh, not to the devil, not to society, not to what my friends say I should be doing. I'm going to yield them to you. And God's grace will be infinitely greater than any temptation you'll face. Nobody here has to be bound. Nobody here has to be bound by sin. Now, the first step is justification. But if you're a child of God, you have all the freedom you need to do what God calls you to do. Here's a third one, anger. You find yourself exploding in anger when somebody irritates you. Do people walk on eggshells around you because you're known to get very angry if they do something that irritates you? That's one type of anger. The Bible also talks about another type of anger. It's that chip-on-the-shoulder type of anger where you walk around all day just boiling inside. And yeah, you can keep it to yourself, but you know you're angry. Guess what? God wants us to be free of anger too. How do I know that? Because Ephesians 4 verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Let me say that again. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Put, put those things away. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, malice. Put those things away, God says to me. Now, I've, I've said to the Lord sometimes, can I just hold on to a little bit of this? You know, the anger sort of motivates me and drives me to do. The Lord says, no, 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 you've totally missed this. I say, God says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking and malice, put that all away. Guess what? Number one, I have to know that I'm a new creature in Christ. That I died. When Jesus Christ died, I died to sin. And when he rose again, I rose to new life in Christ. I've got to reckon it to be true. And the next time I'm tempted to walk around angry all day, or I'm tempted to harbor bitterness, or I'm tempted to explode in anger... God, I'm going to yield these members to you. 
my thoughts, my lips, my hands, my feet. I'm going to yield all that to you. And guess what? God's grace has always been infinite enough to give every Christian who's yielded to him victory. No, reckon, yield. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And again, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, or revilers, extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God will save any person. God can save the most broken and sinful and wicked person, but he doesn't ever leave that person there. He doesn't say, okay, you're saved. You're on your way to heaven. Good enough for me. I've got more work to do. No, God is intensely interested in your sanctification. God's intensely interested in my sanctification, that I should be dead to sin, say no to sin so I can live to God and say yes to him. Again, sanctification, the whole purpose of this purification is not so I can walk around feeling better than other people. It's not so I can say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I'm purified. No, the purpose of the purification is to make me fit, to make me uh, uh, appropriate, to make me prepared for God's use. Just like Aaron and his sons were set apart in the Old Testament so that they could serve in the tabernacle. We don't have a tabernacle today. God wants you to serve right where you're at. He wants you to serve in your home. He wants you to serve in your neighborhood. He wants you to serve in your place of work. And so he is working to sanctify and to purify each one of us. In a minute, I'm going to give an invitation. And during the invitation, I want you to consider two things. Number one, has God justified you? Are you saved? Do you know that you're a child of God and that you have a place in heaven? That's the first question I want you to consider during the invitation. The second one, are you cooperating with God in your sanctification? Are you experiencing that life more abundant? Are you experiencing that new life in Christ? If someone were to ask you, what changes have you seen? Excuse me, what changes have you seen in the last few months in your own life? Well, what changes have you seen? God loves each one of us just the way we are. But he loves us far too much to leave us that way. And so he's intensely interested in your sanctification. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open up the treasures that are in your word. And this truth that you're intensely interested in your sanctification and that you're working on me and that you're working on us, you're working on each of my hearers this morning, either to bring us to justification or to sanctify us. We thank you for that sanctifying work that you're doing in my life and our lives. And it is painful and difficult and it's uncomfortable and it doesn't always feel natural because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked and we're a fool if we trust in our own hearts. But we ask that you continue to do that work of sanctification in my heart, in our hearts, changing us, conforming us to the image of your Son. Lord, we want to be those vessels that are prepared for your use. Those people that because because your grace has purified us, we are ready to minister to others, to be a blessing and to be a help to others. 
We ask for that ongoing work of sanctification. We, we thank you that your grace is unlimited. We don't need to ask for more of it. We ask that we would experience it more fully, that we would be more cooperative, more willing than we have been in the past. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.